If you open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. So we've been going through Paul's letter to Titus uh, for the last month or so. And last week, particularly, we saw uh, the grace of God, right? That grace is the greatest teacher that I know of. Uh, rules work for a minute. Regulations work for a minute. Promises, resolutions, all those things work short, short term. But it's grace that teaches us. We saw three things last week. To deny ungodliness, right? To turn away from those things in our life that we know are not pleasing to the Lord. But it's not just about avoiding the negative, I thank God. It's not just about suppressing desires that we have. Rather, grace also teaches us to live right with ourselves, with others, and with God. And finally, grace teaches us to look diligently for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so because of his grace, we look forward, just like we were singing, we look forward to when Jesus returns, right? We, we long for that day as Christians. We long for that day when, when everything, all the burdens that we have and the, the sins that right now we're fighting, hopefully by grace, uh, we long for that day when we see Jesus face to face and we will get a, a new body in the future, a resurrected body. There won't be any more aches and pains. Anyone have some extra aches and pains as this weather is changing this morning? And so, verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul concluded the end of that section saying, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Now, Titus is in Crete, and the Cretans were not exactly known for their good behavior. Uh, they were known uh, widely for their rebellious behavior, whether it be personally or collectively as a group. And it's important, Paul is reminding Titus, it's important that they rightly represent Christ to the officials in their community. And especially, if you remember from last week, remember when Paul called Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that was a term used for the emperor. And so as a Christian, if you hear that term, oh wait, Jesus is our great God and Savior. Oh, I guess I don't have to listen to the emperor anymore. I guess I don't have to listen to those delegated authorities anymore. I don't have to listen to the king or to the, to the officials any longer because Jesus is king. And with, a, remember, coming from a very rebellious background, that would be very tempting to think, all right, I can live any way I want to now because Jesus is king. I don't have to listen to you anymore. And I remember as a new Christian, I kind of had that mentality myself uh, where I thought just because I'm a Christian now, I only have to listen to him. I don't have to listen to other people. And then I got into the word and I found out I, <laughs> I was really, really wrong. But despite... Christ being their new authority, it did not keep them from honoring those in authority over them. And if you've ever read Romans chapter 13, you see that all authority is actually given by God. And Romans 13 shows us that if we disobey authority, who are we really disobeying? We're really disobeying God. And people in authority are God's ministers for us to try to bring peace, justice, safety, now, that's not always the case. We know we live in a fallen and a corrupt world. Um, and so government, though it's not always good, it's not always holy, it's not always just, 
If you didn't have government in place, imagine what our city streets would be like. I mean, if you remember, many times when there's a major hurricane or a major natural disaster, when things just kind of fall to pieces, think about how New Orleans was after Katrina and all the looting and stealing and just chaos and violence. And so God has instituted government to try to keep peace in a very fallen world. Um, and so we're called to submit ourselves to those in authority over us. And by resisting the government, we're really resisting God. Now, there is one exception. If the government, of course, tells us to do something contrary to what God tells us in his word, we know we're going to listen to the Lord. Remember in Acts, when the apostles were forbidden from preaching in the name of Jesus, and they said, well, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so if the government ever gets to a place where they tell us you cannot preach in the name of Jesus, and, and usually what, what happens, it's not so much in here, Many times in countries when you see a progression of trying to suppress truth, usually you can still meet together. Just don't bring that message outside. Because now you're, you're, you're taking it out to the masses and you're creating what they might perceive as a threat. And, you know, I see where our country's going. I pray that I don't see this, but I wouldn't be surprised if in my lifetime you'll be forbidden from speaking to people about Jesus. We already know that sin is an offense, right? And you shouldn't call people sinners. In fact, some of the things we believe now is considered to be hate. And so what happens when you're forbidden from speaking the name of Jesus? What will you do? Some of you in your jobs are forbidden from speaking his name, and so you have to be wise as a serpent, right? Gentle as a dove. You gotta look for opportunities to share Christ whenever opportunities come. You gotta be careful. Uh, but God opens those opportunities and be faithful when he does. And so we have to obey God rather than men, but by and large, as long as they're not telling you to do something that's against his word, that's unethical, immoral, unbiblical, uh, we have to submit ourselves to those in authority over us. Um, Something really important I just want to point out, though, our willful subjection does not depend on the character of those over us, okay? See, here's where we get trapped up, because when you talk about authority, a lot of times we look at the person with the authority, and if that person with authority, we deem them not worthy of respect, there's temptation there, because we look at the person, we look at their character or lack of character many times, and so what I found, a couple things that have been really helpful, because this, this is not, <laughs> last week I had a, a fun message. <laughs> I, I got to teach you on grace. So Rob set me up well on that one. I'm thankful he didn't give me this one to get started on. Um, but when you hear the word authority or submission, you know, these are words our flesh hates. And I found a couple things that for me have been very helpful uh, as I've had, as I'm sure many of you have had, people in authority over you who aren't exactly God. <laughs> like no one is, obviously. Number one, serve Christ through those over you. In other words, look through the person or past the person to Christ, because that's who you're really obeying. If you serve that person in authority over you as you would serve Christ, I promise you it would change your perspective. And you would serve that person very differently 
Because my flesh says this, you treat me good and with respect, I'll treat you good and with respect. If you disrespect me, what does my flesh want to do? I will disrespect you. That's who we are by nature. And so the Lord is calling us, he's calling those in Crete to submit to those in authority. So serve Christ through those who are over you. Number two, pray for those in authority. Pray for them. You know, Paul would tell Timothy to pray, intercede, and give thanks for all men, for kings, and all who were in authority. And remember, in this day and age, while Paul was writing, you have some pretty corrupt rulers in Rome. Emperors, people like Nero, now not necessarily for Titus, but when he's writing to Timothy, you have people like Nero and Romans who would take Christians, dip them in wax, and light their heads on fire so they look like a giant candle. So he's telling this to people who perhaps in the future will experience great persecution for their faith. And he's encouraging them, you need to be different. Remember how it's t it told us that Jesus, what's he doing? He's purifying for himself his own special people. And so how does he purify us? Well, he causes us to be very, very different from the rest of the world. And so while you're at work and all the employees there are mocking your supervisor, are you going to be different? I mean, this is challenging, right? I've worked at some pretty crazy places. I've worked construction on, in, in the summertime, and you know I've seen some pretty crazy guys, <laughs> definitely not speaking language that you would speak in a church. And you know, guys talk, or the whole water cooler thing. You know, th there's conversations that take place, and it you know it's so easy to not respect authority, isn't it? Now, maybe to the face it's easy sometimes. I mean, we can give lip service to anyone just about for a moment, just because we know if we don't, there's consequences. So hopefully we're not stupid. We know we need to show respect face to face. But what about when that person's not around? See, that's where he wants us to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. And, and notice here, I think the Lord understands this isn't easy because when it says in verse 1, remind them, that word in the Greek means be constantly reminding them. Okay? In other words, it's something that they already know. They've already been taught this, but we need to be reminded again and again and again and again. It's kind of like having children. How many times, how long does it take for a child to learn a bad behavior? How long does it take to develop a good behavior? <laughs> remind them and remind them and remind them and remind them and remind them. That's who we are. We need to be reminded. You know, sometimes as a Christian, as you've been walking with the Lord for a while, it's tempting to always want something new, to want something you haven't learned before. You know, it's exciting when you find those things out. But I find in my life, I need to be reminded about the basic things so often because my mind goes to all the big, you know, fancy theological high places when in real life you're dealing with someone very difficult in everyday life and God wants me to impact that person for Christ. And so remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, there's another word the flesh doesn't like, to be ready for every good work. And so he's getting after Titus here, saying the people in your church, Titus, their community should see their faith in action. 
As they've been changed by the grace of God that we saw last week, the people that they encounter should encounter Christ, ultimately. And we see here three times in this chapter, he's going to mention us having good works. Remember how James said, faith without works is dead? Well, Paul is dri- he's going to drive this home for us today. That is that grace should produce works in our life. If you've experienced the free grace of God, there should be a change, and that should bring about works as we serve the Lord. And so not only are we to be ready for every good work, but notice this, to speak evil of no one. That could be translated not even one person. You know, 99 people, I'm good with. But there's always that one person, right? And he's not leaving us off the hook here. Not even one can you speak evil about? And that's our natural inclination, right? We see and we, we say the worst about people. And as you look online, you know, I don't even get online anymore, honestly, very much when it comes to discussion boards and all that stuff, because someone always ends up angry. You ever notice that? And it always ends up just people going back and forth, angry, no matter what the position is, no matter what's being said. You could have the greatest thing a video online, you know, it's so encouraging and uplifting. And before long at the message board, you just see people bickering about something. And so we, we speak. Notice it says, speak evil of no one. We speak in different ways today, right? We speak with our mouth, of course. We also speak with these. And I've learned, you know, there's something about online that I think we, we separate from reality sometimes. We, we don't think before we type. We think before we speak, maybe, but sometimes we don't think before we type, and we need the Lord to remind us of these things. It also grieves my heart, you know, as I see just our society in general, I feel like there's no respect for authority anymore. I think we've created such an entitlement-based society, and uh, regardless of, you know, who is in office, let's say the President of the United States, I can speak for the last two presidents. I've seen people on both sides just throwing both of those men into the mud. Do I agree with everything? No. Are they the most godly men in the world? But as Christians, we respect the office. Because why? Because who has put them there, ultimately? Christ. And sometimes I look at the world and I think, Lord, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? But he causes nations to rise and fall. He puts kings there for different purposes. Sometimes it's for judgment. Remember in Israel's history, many times he would raise up very corrupt kings to judge Israel because of their sin. And so we need to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable and gentle. That's speaking again of outwardly. We need to be gentle. And that's very difficult, especially when someone disagrees with you. I like to win an argument. And maybe, you know, maybe this doesn't happen to you outside. Maybe this happens in the home. Anyone ever have to get the last word in? Always have to win that battle? He's telling us we need to be peaceable. We're also told to pursue peace with all peace people. As much as depends on us, we should be pursuing peace with everyone. And also being gentle. And notice also showing all humility to all men. Now, this is speaking of our attitude here. This is going deeper than just talk. Just our speech, our language that we use. This refers to our inner attitude of our soul. A humble spirit is what he's referring to here. First and foremost, to the Lord. 
I've learned if you can't have that humility before God, you're not going to have it before man. And so having a humble spirit but towards the Lord and then towards others, even if others are extremely wicked, why? Besides the fact that the Lord's put them there, why is it that I can have a spirit of humility in the midst of someone who's wicked? I believe it's because God uses those people to purify us. Remember what Jesus is up to. We saw this uh, last week. What's he up to again? To purify for himself his own special people. Well, how does he purify us? Does he just put perfect Christians in our path everywhere we go? Everyone who loves us just the way Jesus loves us and speaks to us just the way Jesus speaks to us and treats us the way Jesus would treat us? That's not my experience, right? In fact, that's not my experience in the church. I've been hurt by Christians more than any other person because I've invested more in believers than any other person. Let alone the wicked, let alone the person who uses us. Maybe you have a job and you know your, your boss uses you to make himself or herself look good. But yet, Jesus Christ is purifying you through that person. You know, remember in 2 Samuel 16, David is king and, and Shimei uh, was throwing stones. Shimei is throwing stones and cursing him. And, and, you know, the brothers with him, they're like, man, let's take care of this guy. He's throwing stones. He's cursing at you. Do you hear what he's speaking? And yet David acknowledged it was the Lord who ordered him to do these things. Interesting. As David perceives this man cursing him, he said, he's basically saying God has allowed this to happen. Why? Because he's after me. He's after my heart. He's after me to become like Christ, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, right? When he was spit on, he didn't spit back. When he was mocked, he didn't mock back. And so he wants us to become like Christ. He's purifying us. And isn't it true that those difficult people in your life drive you to the Lord sometimes? I mean, again, when everything goes smooth, I realize we pray. I hope we all pray. But when you're facing difficult people, doesn't that force you to kind of get on your knees a little bit extra? To seek the Lord just a little bit harder? To go a little bit deeper in your relationship with Christ? To depend on the Holy Spirit all the more? Those people in your life are God's instrument to encourage you, but to challenge you. To cause you to dig deeper into His grace and all the resources that He wants to provide. And so, showing all humility to all men, notice all men again, so you're not off the hook, you can't just do it to 99%. And now what we're going to see in verse 3, Paul's going to give us two keys, I believe, in helping us to deal with others. Because I need all the help I can get in this. You know, I can spend my time with the Lord, oh, hallelujah, and then my boys start acting up, and that's when the temptation starts, right? When you're dealing with people. (laughs) And so how is it that we can deal in this way that God's prescribing in verses 1 and 2. Well, number 1, let's read verse 3 together. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And so, first thing he tells us to do 
is remember who you were before Christ. I don't necessarily know that every single word here describes you before Jesus, but I know this, this passage of scripture, this verse describes me. As I look at these descriptors, look at them here, we were foolish. Think of all the foolish things you used to do. Disobedient, disobedient primarily to the Lord, but then of course to other people too. Deceived, isn't that a kicker? I don't like to be deceived. Yet I know before Christ, I was deceived by the enemy. I was just a puppet in his hand. I thought I was free, and yet I was doing him service. Didn't even know it. Serving various lusts and pleasures. That means we were enslaved by our own desires. You know, our desires took us to places to do things that maybe we didn't even think we would ever do. Living in malice and envy, because guess what? You're looking at everyone else in this life before Christ, right? You're comparing yourself to others. You want what others have. You're upset because the, the, the person that you see who seems to be not so good is thriving, and you're, you know, you're not thriving the way you want to be, and hating one another. What a miserable place. You know, think about this. What was your life before Jesus like? That does something to us, doesn't it? You know, I'd encourage you when you get alone with the Lord, just sometimes think about that. Think about who you were before Christ introduced himself to you. What was your life like? Because here's the thing. Many times I find in my life, when I'm around a group of people, we'll just call them wicked, whatever that means. What I don't like in them is what I don't like in myself. And many times I see the old Luke as I see people around me. Because here, here's what happens to us practically. You get saved, you become a Christian. Pretty soon you start hanging out with Christians. You start listening to Christian music and you start watching Christian TV, if there's any such thing, I'm not sure. Um, you start reading Christian books. And so you surround yourself, Christian radio. And all of a sudden now you're thrust at work into a very, let's say, ungodly atmosphere. And isn't it a temptation to curse the darkness? Forgetting that I was there sometimes six months ago, a year ago, ten years ago. That was me. And I forget that so easily. I thought of this earlier this week. Cursing unbelievers is like a butterfly cursing a caterpillar. Cursing an unbeliever is like a butterfly cursing a caterpillar. So the first thing he tells us to do, remember who we were before Christ. The second thing we do in verse 4 is this. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, so often in scripture, when that word but appears, I'm so thankful for it. Because it shows us who we were before Christ, and then all of a sudden, God intervenes. And he's saying here, number two, not only do you remember who you were before Christ to help you deal with difficult people, but number two, remember how Christ revealed himself to you. You know, if you ever get into a rut spiritually, just remember that day. 
And it will bring great joy to your heart as you remember how Christ intervened. And notice in, in verses 4 and 5, I want to point something out here. Notice in verse 5 when it says, Not by works of righteousness which he has done, but according to his mercy he saved us. What that means is that it is the mercy in God's heart for us that dominated his action toward us. Okay? God's heart was so overflowing and consumed with mercy that it dictated how he treated us. And the point is, as you reflect upon his mercy towards you, it will impact your heart towards those around you. Because it's not trying to fake a smile. You know that? Like someone says something and you just give them that nice little fake smile. Like, all right, you know, God's going to get you. Right? It's not faking a smile. It's a heart that is stirred deeply with mercy for this person who's in front of me. Because I see that this person is in a path that leads to destruction and to hell. And the mercy of God grips my heart so that I respond differently. And it's not me trying harder again. Why? Because that's the Father's heart towards me. He was so moved. He saw me in verse 3 in the mess of Luke. And yet in the mess of me, he had mercy. I mean, I could talk about that all day. I could talk about my mess all day, right? But yet his mercy moved him to send his son to take our place on a cross. And it, he, it pleased him, in fact, it says in Isaiah, to crush the son for us. That's how much his heart was moved by mercy. It pleased him to crush the son. I don't get that. I don't understand that kind of love, that kind of, I mean, I get it, but... It's a revelation that I think God's going to, for all eternity, keep revealing to us his mercy that he showed us at the cross. And so verse 5, his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so we were washed from our old behavior, a one-time cleansing from all that is negative, And God has he has renewed us positively into a new creation that will work itself out. Okay? So it's speaking of a cleansing, a one-time cleansing, and a one-time renewal that now that renewal is taking place in our life. We're renewing our minds today, right? And so even though this renewal in the Greek is a one-time thing, it has this constant effect upon our lives because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, because we're a new creation in Christ. Have we been perfected yet? Not so much. Ask my wife, right? But we're being renewed. We're being transformed. And it's all because of what Christ has done for us by his grace. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that we should be justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in verses 4 through 7, some would call this a creed, we actually see the Trinity in this section, how the triune God has been active in our salvation. You see in verse 4, it is the kindness and love of God the Father. 
In other words, God is the initiator of our salvation. The Father is the initiator. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. So the Father is the initiator. He's not angry up, up in heaven, and then the Son is like love down here on earth. No, it was the Father's mercy that compelled him to send the Son. So we see the Father is the initiator. We see in verse 5 it, that the Holy Spirit is the instrument of regeneration or renewal, right? It is because of the Holy Spirit that we believe on Christ. And then we see that the Son is the agent of our redemption in verse 6. And so God, Father, Son, and Spirit, He was active in our redemption. And I believe the fact of that is He's a relational God, right? The fact that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit tells us He's relational. And He values relationships. And He sent His Son so we could have a relationship with Him. And He wants us to have proper relationships now with other people. And so remember who you used to be. Remember, it is surely the mercy of God that saved us, not we ourselves. The only thing that separates you from an unbeliever is God's mercy. And what does mercy mean? You, you don't get what you deserve. So what makes us think that we can give those people what they deserve when we haven't been given what we've deserved? That's the point. And so verse 8, this is a faithful saying... And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Guess what? I need to be reminded of this every single day. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable, profitable to men. Notice this is the second time that Paul mentions God's concern for our good works. And this implies that we should care greatly about our good works too. You know, this is following, if you've, uh, many of us know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I think a lot of us have that memorized, don't we? So, same thought of reasoning. God's grace towards us in salvation. But if you keep reading verse 10, sometimes we stop at verse 9 in Ephesians. This is what verse 10 says. It says, for we are his workmanship, or his poema where we get the word poem. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why is Paul, both to the Ephesians as well as here to Titus, so concerned about our works? Well, because you were saved to serve. You were saved by grace. Now from that grace, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. God has prepared good works for every single one of his children. When he saved you, he set you apart for good works. That's why we need to be as Christians so concerned about this. Because what did it say in Ephesians? It said God prepared these things beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, that's encouraging for me as a Christian. God has good works for me. And this isn't just for a pastor or a worship leader. This is for every single believer. God has ordained works for you. And some of those works involve difficult people, don't they? In fact, most of them do. <laughs> 
But doesn't that change the way you perceive those relationships with the people? God, wow, Lord, this is a work that you have ordained beforehand. I should walk in this, Lord. You've ordained this situation. You've ordained this difficult person in my life. Not only to purify me, but so that I could be a witness for you to this person. Am I being careful to maintain good works? You know, in the Protestant church, we don't like to talk about works because we're afraid of legalism. But again, remember, we're working from grace, right? And you can't separate faith from works. That's the thing. Genuine faith that's been ex- changed by God's grace, man, it, it's got to work. You've got to get that out what God has poured into you. You can't help but speak at times because of what the Lord's doing. But here's the thing. Things distract us from the work that God has for us. Do you know that? You realize there's many distractions in this world and in this life. Notice what he goes on in verse 9 to say here. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So there were a lot of Judaizers back in this day who would come into the church and try to get people to go back to the law. And we're not going to get too in-depth with this, but the point is, they're trying to use these genealogies and teach different things that would get people off the main thing. You know, you get on these rabbit trails, and, and we all have our hobby horses, but these hobby horses, were, they, they weren't even profitable. He's saying, don't even, just avoid it. Don't even get into the disputes, because there are some things that just aren't worth disputing about. They're not even worthy of that. And verse 10, he goes on now, he's going to speak of the person who probably brings those things in. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Okay, this divisive man is to be warned twice, similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, right? Go to the person one-on-one, if that doesn't work, bring someone else And so he's saying, look, warn that person twice to stop it. (laughs) Be more concerned about the the, the main points of Scripture rather than these little mighty sub-points that you're trying to build into the main point. But if that person does not receive that correction, reject that person. That's strong language. Very strong language that Paul is using there. And we would refer to this person as a heretic. Uh, Ironside, H.A. Ironside, a commentator, said the heretic is really a factious person, meaning the person likes to bring division and chaos. More concerned about gathering adherence to himself and maintaining a sectarian view of truth than falling into line with the entire body of revelation and seeking the blessing of all the people of God. In other words, this person's more concerned about themselves than others. And this kind of person comes into a church and they just want to draw people after themselves and into their secret truth that they have, that, that, you know, the people are wrong and most Christians who've lived are wrong. This is it. And usually it's something really stupid. It's like, I don't know. Maybe they get sidetracked on who were the Nephilim in Genesis, you know? And now their big thing is telling everyone who the Nephilim are. And if you don't believe that the Nephilim were this, well, then you're not really a believer. And so everything becomes about the Nephilim, you know? It's about Jesus, not the Nephilim, (laughs) right? I mean, there are neat things in Scripture. There are mysteries. There are things we don't perceive necessarily on this side. 
but don't get sidetracked. And here's what this means when it says here that such a person is warped. That word suggests that the cause came from outside the person. In other words, this person's probably under the sway of Satan and demonic influence. I mean, think about it. Isn't that Satan's desire to divide the body, to bring chaos in the midst of peace? When God's at work, when people are serving the Lord and doing good works, the enemy comes in and tries to knock you off your square. And one of the best ways he does that is just divert your attention. And you know who he wants you to focus on more than anyone else? You. Remember when Jesus told the disciples for the first time he was going to go to the cross? And remember when Peter had the nerve to rebuke Jesus? Oh, far be it from you, Lord. Not, not so. No, no, no. That should never be. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, for you're an offense. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Who was Satan trying to get Jesus to think of? Yeah. See, if Satan could get Jesus to think of only Jesus and not us who need mercy, then he could keep him from going to a cross. He could keep him from redeeming us. And I found in my life Satan's greatest tactic is to divert attention away from good works to me. It's all about me. You know, about a month ago, I was watching an interview of a guy from the Church of Satan. I don't know why I was watching this. Um, There was a point to it, I remember. I don't really watch that for fun, necessarily. But it was interesting. He said, you know, the the Church of Satan is really the church of me. He said, really, we're the ones on the throne. I thought that to be interesting. And so... Avoid these things. Reject the divisive person. Verse 12. And when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Uh, Artemis, we don't really know anything about him. Tychicus um, was in Paul's third missionary journey. We believe he probably brought the letters to the Ephesians and Colossians and even Philemon. Uh, though not necessarily Philemon. I think it's Ephesians and Colossians. Um, Either way, what we see is Paul is using people, right? He has people in his life who are serving the Lord with him. He's not a loner when it comes to the gospel and the church. And he's encouraging, uh, he's going to send one of these guys so that Titus can then go. And verse 13, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. In other words, he's giving Titus an opportunity now for good works. Perhaps these brothers brought this letter to Titus, and now Paul's saying, I want you to send them out, but make sure you supply for their needs. Make sure you have good works. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. Number three, right? To meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. I just want to close with this. You know, there is, there is no more miserable Christian than the Christian who lives his or her life for themselves. We've been saved by grace. All throughout Titus, saved by the grace of God. Now, my challenge to all of us is, let's go out and work from that grace for the Lord. What are the good works God has put before you, both in the church and outside the church? Are you serving? You know, the purpose of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You are ministers. 
and the Lord has good works for you, I do not want to go and stand before him face to face that day and realize that my life has been unfruitful. Yes, I'm saved by grace. Yes, there's nothing I can do to add to that or take away from that, what Christ has done for me. But because of what Christ has done for me, I can't help but share it with others. What are the works God's calling you to do? Are you putting anything off? Are you allowing the enemy to bring distraction, you know, just getting you sidetracked? Well, maybe what was so clear before, and now you just, we need to redirect, get the GPS back in sync with where God's calling us to go. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for just how your word challenges us, Lord. I know I was so challenged this week, Father, because there's just, we fall so short, Lord, so often. But we thank you that your grace abounds, Lord. Even when sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so, Father, I pray that by your grace, you'll help us to pursue good works, Lord. That you'll constantly remind us, Father, of our need to be in subjection to those over us, Lord. That we would see every person as an opportunity, not only for you to purify us, but that we would then be an instrument in your hands to reveal Christ to those people, Lord. Help us to pray for the difficult people in our life, Lord. Help us to serve like we're serving you. Help us to remember from where you brought us, Lord, and remember your mercy that so moved your heart. So God, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.